Well, good morning and welcome to Eastlake. We're so glad you're here. My name is Brent and I'm a teaching pastor. And if this is your first time, thanks for checking us out, especially on a holiday weekend. I know there's tons of things competing for your time, so we're glad that you are spending it here with us. Uh, you also picked a great weekend to come check it out because we are in the middle of a series that is kind of a DNA series for us. If you've ever taken a job and, uh, and you were given, like, on the day of the, your first day, here's the employee manual, and it took you a few weeks to realize, like, this is part of it, but not all of it. There are things about this job uh, that are unspoken, but this is kind of how we do things around here. That is what this series is basically about. Here's what spiritual growth, here's our perception from a leadership standpoint of what spirituality looks like uh, for East Lake and how we kind of structure our organization around those principles of growth. We call them steering principles of growth. Not destination things, but steering things. This is how we do things around here. So this is kind of an important deal. Um, last week, we kicked off the series um, with week one, and we, we talked about uh, two characters that show up early on in the gospel stories, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the stories about Jesus and uh, teaching and life and that kind of stuff. And two of the earliest characters are a guy named John and then a guy you probably know, Jesus. And and John is John the Baptist, and he shows up kind of like as this Old Testament holdover. He's this Old Testament, you know, prophetic type person. He's got this weird, you know, beard thing. He's got weird clothes, funky diet, and... um, and he and he's super conservative on some stuff, and he comes out saying, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near." And then Jesus shows up on the scene and says pretty much the same thing: "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near." But Jesus does things a lot differently. His methods are quite a bit different, right? He attends all of these parties. He eats with sinners and 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 drunk people, and and all kind. And he even goes to a wedding party once. And his very first miracle, the way he makes his presence known, is he changes water into wine and probably plenty of it. And people are like, "Okay, well, this is different." And not only did the people who were like outside of religious circles think that something was going on with Jesus that was different, but even John and his disciples thought that something was different. That's why John, while he's in jail, sends two of his disciples to Jesus saying, are you really the Messiah, the Son of God, or should we expect somebody else? Because the way that you are doing things don't match up to the way that I do things. And Jesus' response to the disciple, or John's disciples was essentially this, Look not at the fruit, or look not at the methods of the way that I do things, but look at the fruit. Am I leading people towards becoming more loving and more kind and more gracious and more gentle and more patient uh, or, or away from this? And, and then he sends them off to go tell John kind of what he sees and what's happening with all of this. And as they go away, then Jesus turns to his people and he doesn't disparage John. He doesn't say, that's that crazy John guy, he got it completely wrong. He praises John. And he says, uh, you know, under, of all the people born of women, John is, is the greatest. And, and if you want to enter in the kingdom of heaven, it's got to be like that. And so it's very confusing because you're like, it seems like you're coming at this from right field to left field here. What's going on with all of this? And Jesus continually points to, listen, it's not the methods but the fruit. It's not the methods but the fruit. And we've taken, we take very unique methods at, in this church, in this, in this organization. But our hope is that we would look at it and say, as a result of being a part of a community like this, we are responding by being more loving. We, we are, are more reactionary towards grace and towards peace and towards love and towards kindness and gentleness, faithfulness, and even self-control in all of those areas. So today, uh, I want to start off by asking you a different question and show you another principle, a steering principle that we feel like looks like spirituality for us around here. Here's my question, opening question to you. Have you ever uh, been more aware of the implications, and I put consequences in there because sometimes that's how we think of things. Uh, have you ever been more aware of the implications of the consequences of a major life decision than the person who is actually making the decision? Have you ever been in a situation where you're listening to somebody talk and they're talking about a major life decision for them 
And all the, in, in your mind, all that's racing around is, oh my gosh, I don't know that they understand the bigness, if I can make a word, the bigliness of this, of this decision that they are about to make, right? You sat there and, you, and you've listened to them and it's a friend, it's a family, and you got your spouse there, a girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever, and they're across the table from you at Bob's Burgers after church today and they say something like this, we're thinking about getting a dog. And you're like, why? Why would you get a dog? And like, I don't know, we just want to have something that when we come home at night, there's somebody, I, I just want somebody that's excited to see me. And I want somebody to run up to me and lick my face and do all that kind of stuff. And my kids won't do it anymore. And my, my wife's like not into that kind of stuff. So I, I want a dog. I think I want a dog. And you as a friend have begun the discussion. You're like, okay, cool. A lot of people have dogs. Makes sense. Um, have you thought about uh, how much they eat? Have you thought about your yard? Is it big enough? Is, there, is it fenced? Is it not fenced? Have you thought about how you're going to have to... To, to walk the dog, and especially those of you who have dogs, you're, you're probably more defensive of this than people who don't, because people don't are like, cool, man, good luck with that, right? But when you have a dog, you're like, do you understand? I have to take my dog to go get shots every year. It requires me loading them up in my car. I get a notice in the postcard from the Blue Animal Cross Shelter, whatever that is. I have to drive him or her, this dog, my dog, down to this spot. They look at the dog, they feel the dog, and they say, all right, 60 bucks, your dog's fine. Okay, great, here's the money. And they get shots, and then I got to take them home, and, and, and they get, then they got to get spayed and neutered, and, and it's, it's all kinds of food. And, and, then, and then this is the, the, like the worst part. I live in Pasco. You have to have a dog license in Pasco. I have to pay $20 a year to own my dog for the city to say, yep, you own a dog. You know what I mean? And so I write this check, and every time I write this check, I look down at my dog, and I'm like, you're costing me 20 bucks, and what do you do around here? Have you ever done anything for this family? And they just look up and tails going all crazy and stuff like that. And then they, you know, there's just, there's messes. If you leave them out like too long, and, and, then, and then we're leaving this week uh, to go to the coast to go visit my, my wife's grandparents. And we have to find somebody to watch. We can't just get up and leave anymore. You got to like find somebody to watch your dogs. I'm like, my wife will not let me just leave them outside for the whole week. And so I have to, we have to now find babysitters or would you come to our house and here's a key and you got to, they require this much food and don't feed them too much because the doctor said they're getting fat. I paid $60 to figure out for him to tell me that they're fat. So make sure that you only give them this much. It's like, do you really want a dog? Have you thought through the implications of getting a dog? We're thinking about getting a dog. You should think harder. Have you thought about a hamster? <laughs> or a cat? Cat seems, I don't know, Whatever. You sit there and you think, I don't think you've thought through the implications of this. Or then it becomes even more serious, right? You're sitting across from your brother or sister or sibling or whatever, and they say, we're thinking about getting married. And you're like, married? To him. To him. <laughs> okay, all right, we can roll with this. You guys feel like you're ready? It's been a good month. You guys have been dating for a good solid month. It's great. Uh, interesting. And then a few months later, they come back or after the ceremony or before, sometimes before it doesn't matter, they go, we're thinking about having a baby, trying for a baby. And you're like, you have kids. You're like, have you thought about a dog? <laughs> I don't think that you've thought through all the ramifications for all of this. And you get back in your car after dinner or after lunch or whatever, and you get back in the car, and as soon as, as, soon as the doors close, you look at each other and be like, can you believe those guys? What are they thinking? How in the world could... 
What kind of a situation would you want to bring a dog into that would be like this or a kid into? Like, they're getting married. Oh my gosh, what are they, what are they crazy? And then whoever is the more reasonable out of the two of you go, well, we weren't ready, really. I mean, when we got married, when we got the dog, we didn't know what we were getting ourselves into. Usually it's the person who's not related to the person that we just left the dinner from, right? Well, we weren't, you know, we weren't ready for any of this and we did it. And there's a line and I don't know where it's at. It's probably different for, me, for you. You have some friends, you have some acquaintances and maybe even some family that when they say things that they haven't, you think that they haven't thought through the consequences of it, you smile and you nod your head and you say, good luck with that, don't you? But then there are some times where the line is, uh, it, it's, you're too far in. You're too far into that relationship. You, you love that person too much. You care about the situation too much. And you begin to offer some you know, caution. Well, if you, th- you, know, you do this whole cautionary thing. And, and, and then at some point it stops. And you're like, well, I mean, this is, they got to kind of do their own thing and live their own life. They're kind of independent. Every relationship has that stopping point. But then when it comes to your kids, have you noticed that when it's a friend, acquaintance, or family member, you're like, well, you know, they're going to learn from the hard knocks of life and life experience that taught us something and teaches them something too. And if my advice can't save them from regret, whatever, you know. But then when it comes to your kids, if you've had, if you have kids who are kind of older and into that adolescent phase of life or becoming a young adult or teen or whatever those, whatever that phrase is or whatever, there's something in you. And I say you because I'm not there yet. My daughter's nine and then I have twin four-year-olds, so I, I'm, I'm still boss to them. I'm still in boss telling them what to do, not, not encouraging them to think for themselves. I, I tell them how to live their life right now, and I love it. It's great. But, but I, was a, I, was a, I was a youth pastor for about six years, so I got a chance to see junior high and high school kids starting kind of to emerge in their own type of lifestyle, and I saw some parents refuse to... Uh, allow them to, you know, refuse to fall into, well, it's just life experiences, they'll live, they'll learn. For some reason, parents want to hold on tightly and protect themselves from this. We want to make sure that, uh, that they don't fail or get hurt or experience pain or go through regrets. When it comes to our kids, it usually feels different, and it's human nature to want a more hands-on approach when it comes to handling our own kids. Um, so here's the phases at which parents go through, which I, I will tie in at the end to talk about how it affects how we kind of view spiritual growth here at the church. But essentially, the role of a parent, and this is from what I've seen and observed and know, and I may be wrong, there might be not three phases, but four or five or six, but bear with me and work with me on this illustration, okay? You go at some point from being a boss. A boss is, I'm going to tell you what to do. A boss is, this is how you're going to do things around here. And when you're child, or when your kid is a child, this is the best case scenario. You don't need to negotiate with your little four-year-old about whether the stove is hot. Well, I don't think it is. Well, okay, well, life experience. Go ahead and stick your hand on that thing and see how it goes, right? Not recommended. You are a boss in that situation. At some point, it transitions to a coach. The difference between a boss and a coach is I tell you what to do when I'm your boss. Coach is here's what I think you should do. I come from a rule giver to now I'm an advice giver. And at some point, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 30 years old, some, at some point, you become an advice giver to your kid. Listen, I'm going to let you choose it because, you know, it's your own life and you, you need to figure some of this out for your own. But I, I, hope, I hope that I have earned enough trust with you 
to be able to listen to my advice and tell you that this is what I think you should do. And that transition can be tough a lot of times. Depending on how good you were as a boss and how much they trusted you largely affects how they view you as a coach. And unfortunately, sometimes parents never make that transition. They continue to act as a boss to their kids, and the problem is it leads to a breakdown in their relationship because their kids really desperately want to coach because they value that independence and it's ingrained in our, you know, in our DNA to want that kind of independence and breakage of the bond between the parent and kid thing. But what happens is we may sometimes refuse that and still tell them what to do at 16, 17, 18. I, I mean... I get it that there are some things that you're like, well, I, I just can't let my kid do that, Brent. I understand. I, I get that. But a lot of times when we fail to transition out that uh, to a coach role in the life of our kid, it's not necessarily, it's not really at all our kid's fault. It's a dig at our parenting. It's a dig at the immaturity of not understanding what it means to grow as a parent. Just as your kid grows, so then you must grow in your independence to hopefully shape them, because you can't monitor them for the rest of their life. For the most part, they're going to move out when they're 30, you know what I mean? So then, then what are they going to do? So you go then from being a coach, and the last one is you become a fan. Every, good, every really good parent understands that there are phases in this, that I, I'm a boss for a while, I'm a rule giver, then I give advice, and then at the end I give encouragement, and I give praise. And I don't necessarily, you're not looking for advice from me anymore. My relationship with my dad is now, I know I'm his, uh, he's my biggest fan. I'm a big fan of his too, but he's my biggest fan, right? He, he sends me cards, and the cards now are not, here's what you should do with your life, but man, I'm just so proud of you for who you are and what you become, blah, blah, yada, yada, right? Sappy, great. Um, he is in the same professional line of work that I am. He's a pastor at a church in Pasco, but I don't go to him for pastoral advice, not because I don't think he's doing things right, it's just... Styles are very different. I don't need coaching advice from him. I worked for him for five years. I got coaching advice. Now, we operate as peers. You, for some of you who have adult kids, this is the phase that you're in, and it's your favorite phase ever. He's, it's like I'm treating him or her as a peer, and I get a chance to offer this type of encouragement to them. And, and what that signifies is a fully matured relationship between a parent and a child. The hardest transition point, though, is from boss to coach, boss to coach. That's a very difficult one for a lot of people um, to make. Now, we're going to talk, I'm going to read a passage from the book of Proverbs, and uh, the reason I want to do this is because this was basically an instructional booklet for Jewish people, Jewish fathers and mothers, to be able to raise their children, to pass down information from them to live as a coach, to give them, yes, there are some black and white advice things, right? A lot of the things that come from Proverbs, you know, um, they're just wise sayings, uh, observations that imply obedience or, or things that imply instruction. Um, but in the very first nine chapters, so Proverbs 1 through 9, what we see are lectures um, from a father to a son, Okay. And this type of an instructional booklet was pretty common in the ancient Near East. So um, the Egyptians had their kind of own version of this. Uh, the, the, the Romans had kind of their own version. Uh, or Sorry, that was a lot later. But um, uh, the Assyrians had their own version of instructions from a father to a son. And this is the Jewish version. So that's what the book of Proverbs essentially is, right? And so 
I want to read chapter 4, which is the sixth lecture of 10 between a father and a son, and show you what it looks like as he's moving towards coaching his son, not just giving him black and white instructions on what to do in a certain situation. Listen, my son, accept what I say, and the years of your life will be many. I instruct you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. That's going to be, we're going to come back to paths in just a minute. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered. When you run, you will not stumble. Hold on to instruction. Don't let go of it. Guard it well, for it is your life. That's section number one. So four verses. Now we're going to transition. So this is the good, the bad, and then the summary, okay? Here's the bad. Verse 14 uh, says this, do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evildoers. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn from it and go on your way, for they cannot rest until they do evil. They are robbed of sleep till they make someone stumble. They eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence, literally consumption of evil, okay? Now summary, so they're going to do two verses that are going to summarize. The first verse is going to summarize the first four verses and the second one, the second four. The path of the righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter till the full light of day, but the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. Listen, my son, I'm going to tell you what life looks like on the path of the righteous and the wicked. So I'm going to do some observations or commentary in the first four verses. I'm not going to read through it again, but it's going to be on the screen so you can see it. But lots of conversations and dialogue throughout the entire book, but especially even here, um, about ways, about paths, about direction. You see a good coach is coaching up his son, not telling him Here's, if this happens, here's what you should do. That's black and white. That's fine. That's fine when you're a boss. But when you're a coach, it leads to something different. He lifts his head up a little bit further and says, do you see where this path is taking you? Let's take our focus off of this specific decision. But if this decision is made, then it's probably going to lead to another decision, which leads to another one, which leads to another one. And essentially, you've got a pattern. And if you look at that pattern, what's the long-term direction of that pattern? Where do you think this ends up leading you in life? What kind of a person do you think you will become or could become should you make not only this decision, but decisions like this in the future? I'm not talking about the next step. I'm talking about the path to get there. Can I lift your head just a little bit further and let you see the long-term effects of choosing this path? The path principle is important because it's your direction, not your determination, that's going to determine where you actually end up in life, as in your destination, all right? You will never get to Seattle by taking 395 north or south. I'm just breaking the news to you right now. If you're like, okay, I'm on 395, which way do I go to get to Seattle? I would say, well, you get off 395 and you, you go somewhere different. Oh, but I really want to go to Seattle. I, I know I understand, but you're on the wrong path. There's not... There's no part of 395 intersects with Seattle. You pick the wrong freeway. Get off of it. That's the direction. That's the power of a path. But I really want to go to Seattle. I understand, but it's not your determination. It's your direction. North-south doesn't get you there. This father is trying to train, this, is trying to train his son, listen, if, if you're making this decision right now in this, this way, it has long-term effects on you. Prudent people look as far down the road as possible when making decisions. All right, now we're going to talk about section two, those four verses that follow in 14 through 17, the part about the evil uh, people. They're so addicted to evil, it has become their sedative by night and their food and drink by day. And it talks specifically about how it has consumed them like an addiction. 
They eat the bread of wickedness and they drink the wine of violence. It becomes a part of them. And like any addiction, we know the law of addiction is that um, it starts off with curiosity, right? And then it requires that thrill that you get from kind of pushing the boundaries and doing something you know you're not supposed to do. Um, the next time around, it's the law of diminishing returns. I, I'm, it requires a little bit more from me. I got to click a little bit, a few more links on that. I've got to find darker stuff. I got to do more drugs. I got to drink just a little bit more to get the same type of return. And eventually, it becomes where I can't even function as an individual. It just leads down this path to where I wake up one day and it's not a hobby. It's not something that is something I do with my free time. It is consuming, all consuming me. In his very first lecture, again, this is lecture six of 10, in lecture number one in chapter one of Proverbs, he talks about how the complacency of youth leads to a complacency towards evil, right? So it's not like they choose to be evil, they just um, apathetic towards evil, but that apathy eventually leads towards it completely dominating you. In other words, this decision that you're about to make, it might be wrong, but it's so simple, it's so nothing, it's so, it doesn't even matter. Yeah, it's probably not right, but it doesn't even matter. The Father's saying, yeah, it doesn't matter in this moment, but it sets a precedent for what's to come in that path. Where does that lead you? Consumed by evil. Consumed by evil. You're sedative by night, your food and drink by day. And the best part of the commentary comes in the summary verses, verses 18 and 19, the best part. I'm just going to read these ones fully. The path of the righteousness is like the morning sun shining ever brighter, ever brighter. Why is the morning sun shining ever brighter? It's rising off of the horizon. Have you noticed that when the sun first comes, peaks over the horizon, you can kind of see some things, but like colors are, it's kind of, everything's kind of gray. And then as it gets higher, now everything comes in a little bit clearer of a picture. I used to go hunting with my dad um, because uh, he had a connection with a guy who owned a wheat farm in Washtucna. And there's so many deer out there. It was like, take your pick is basically how it worked. Uh, it wasn't really hunting. It was more armed walking and, you know, anyways, uh, it was great. And then the uh, farm was sold and we lost our private hunting ground. And so we had to go to public land. And if you've ever hunted on public land, you understand the the taste at which I say public hunting land, right? It's a lot harder. There's a lot more competition. There's a lot less deer, yada, yada, yada. So our first year hunting on public land, we woke up early. It was four in the morning. It's cold out. You're dressed. You're bundled up. You got all your stuff. You got your fanny pack full of uh, all the granola bars and the everything else to kind of keep you awake. And I, we, we go out, and it's so dark. You, all you have is a flashlight. And we find our way to a spot. I find this tree with this rock. It seems to be overlooking kind of a valley. I'm like, I'm going to park myself here. He's going to go over the next valley over. We're going to be good. We sit there. Everything looks great, looks fine. As the light begins to kind of crest over the mountaintops, all of a sudden some things come into focus a little bit. And I'm like, there seems to be something over there. I don't know if that's a deer or not. And there's something over there. And that looks like a good spot. And then as the light comes up, what do I see? Four orange vests within 100 yards of me. Other hunters looking at me going, ah, oh, suck. We just wasted our whole morning together because we're right next to each other. I didn't even hear him. He didn't see me. I mean, there's all, you know, how do we miss each other? And all of a sudden you realize, uh, well, this is stupid. We are absolutely wasting our time in this way. 
They were there the whole time. I just couldn't see them because the light wasn't there for me. But as the sun rose, I began to see the weakness of my situation, right? Then it goes on. But the way of the wicked, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. The word that is used in this proverb, deep darkness, is the same word that is used to describe the Egyptian plague, one of the 10 plagues that Moses uh, incurs basically through God on the, the nation of Egypt while he's holding all the people is, um, is utter darkness. During the, there's going to be a day where it's going to be completely dark. And it says they wandered around at noon, un- feeling for where they could go. It was like, just like pitch black, and they didn't have lights to, you know, turning that on. If you've ever, um, like we had this storm this last Monday, some of you guys probably lost power in your house, and you forget how much you rely on power and then it's pitch black, and you're like, let's light a candle. We don't even own candles. What are we going to do? You know what I mean? And you light this tiny, small candle, and you guys can feel, you're feeling down the hallway, going to the bedroom and all that. It's just, it's crazy. This is, that's the darkness, that fully enveloped darkness is being described. And they do not know what makes them stumble. He contrasts the rising sun, which provides more light and more observation, to the setting sun, which means it becomes more or less dark for me. And the result of it is missed connections. They don't know what makes them stumble. Eventually, the problem with leading a wicked lifestyle and being on a path towards wickedness is that you don't, you begin to fail to see why I'm experiencing the consequences of the pain that I am. I don't see how my behavior in this way is leading to these. I feel like life's unfair everyone's out to get me, and the reason I'm struggling with this is because I can blame it on so many different things. And if you've ever been around those types of people, you realize it's like almost blinded. It's almost blinded them to be able to not see. Did you see how your addiction led to this money situation that led you to more debt, that led you to conflict in your marriage? And you're destroying yourself, but you're blaming it on her. Or you're blaming it on him. Missed connections. These Jewish fathers would import this advice or be expected from the community to import this advice to each of their kids that this is how life works. All right? This is what righteousness looks like. This is what evil, uh, the path towards evil look like, looks like. In my own interpretation, here's the principle by which I think people grow or, uh, or don't grow or move towards being lost in their own utter darkness. It's called the dimmer switch principle. When we respond to the light that we have, God gives us more. When we take what we know we ought to do and we begin to operate in that way, what happens is more light is revealed and we realize I've got more to work on. God gives us more. When we don't, he takes away the light that we already have. So when we started this church seven years ago, I had read this uh, somewhere from a pastor in California who wrote a book on, on this stuff, Contrarian's Guide to Knowing God, Larry Osborne. And he preached about this, and I realized if we're going to do a church for people who don't typically like church, then what we have are people who are coming with all kinds of things in their life, like they've never been in an environment where, like we all know that there's something wrong with us. Like everybody goes, yeah, I'm, I've got things that are wrong with me, right? And the church has been notorious for quickly pointing out those things and telling them immediately what is black and white. Well, here's what you gotta do to fix this. Here's what you gotta do to fix this. 
And then if you fix all those things, then you can belong here. And that's operating with a boss mentality. The, the church is the rule giver in this way. And we said, listen, we are not going to be a bossy church. <laughs> if I can use that term a little loosely on that. I, wanna, I want to, I understand the value of coaching people to allow God's spirit. Like, I'm not the Holy Spirit in your life. I'm not God's voice. And I'm not God's conscience. I, I, I would never assume that type of responsibility. But if, I can, if we can create an environment that inspires people to understand that, that what you are called to do is respond to the light that you have and know and trust that God is going to increase that more for you. At the beginning of our journey with God, our spiritual discernment has more in common with a nightlight than a floodlight. We don't really know what is right or wrong. I've had people, they'll come to me and they've got so many things in their life that are major issues and they want to focus on one thing and, and it's usually a smaller thing and everything within me wants to be like, what about, I mean, what about all, all this stuff? But I, I can't. I, I, I want to help them realize to get success in this because what that does is it breeds the ability to be like, okay, maybe, maybe I do have blind spots. Maybe there are more things in my life. Maybe that conviction isn't my responsibility, but an awareness for them to be able to put themselves in a spot where the conviction comes from God's spirit, not from the rule giver and the church. The longer we walk in obedience, the clearer spiritual picture becomes, and subtle distinctions that were once indiscernible then become obvious for us. Things that we would never have noticed at first can't now be missed. If you came to this church and expected weekly, Brent, tell me what I should do with my life in terms of black and white morality, um, then there are a lot of churches that will do that for you. Here's what you're doing wrong. Here's what you need to do to be doing right. Uh, put some money in the plate and then see ya. Have a great week. Don't forget to pick up your kids. You know what I mean? I mean, that's a big mentality, but it can't in there. That's not really maturity. My hope would be to discuss the importance of paths and to say, um, listen, I can help you discern wisdom in this specific situation, but I'd rather help you lift up your eyes a little bit and say, is this the pattern? Is this the lifestyle that I want to go on? Maybe you're on a completely different, you're on 395, you're trying to get to Seattle. I'm trying to help you out to see that you're in the wrong direction. The, the big issue between boss, coach, and fan is the level of autonomy and independence that is required from this. Listen, if I, if I was a part of an organization that in this church focused on black and white rules, then I'm monitoring your behavior or helping you monitor your behavior. And what I see from Jesus over and over again is not behavior management. He's more interested in the heart of things. I want you to understand why you shouldn't want to do those things. It's not enough to not have you do them. I want you to see the bigger picture on this. You don't want your fully mature 30-year-old son or daughter to keep calling you saying, Mom or Dad, what should I do with this? I've got option A or option B. 
when they're 12 and 13, fine. But at some point, you become a coach and you give advice. But then really the maturity point hits when they're making those decisions the way that you would want them to make those decisions, but they're not even consulting you about them. That's when you go, I'm a huge fan. And I pat myself on the back and I say, I did it. (laughs) I'm a good dad. I'm a good mom. I've raised a human being that is a beneficial presence in this community and in this world that is in touch with their creator. And I fulfilled my calling as a parent. Listen, that is why, that is why, that is why, that is why the way that we view spirituality here, the way that we view discipleship, because a lot of people will come and be like, this is great, this is a church for unchurched people, but what does growth look like? Growth looks like an engaging the community, an engaging community that inspires people to take their own independent steps towards growth because I think it leads to the most long-term maturity in their life. It deals with heart issues, not behavior issues. Because I can monitor your behavior for so long, but then eventually... I really don't have any business to do it. I mean, it's not, it's a sign of immaturity in me as a leader and immaturity in this organization if we stay in that route and don't transition to, yes, there's a season for boss, but then there becomes a season for coaching. And then we become fans and peers who are doing life together and encouraging one another in the path of what it means to follow Jesus. That's the bigger picture for discipleship at the church. Now, I got a few thoughts. I'm closing with thoughts and a couple of questions, okay? Thought number one, and this is a takeaway for you, okay? I don't have to have anxiety about all the things I don't know, which is a huge thing for people who have never been a part of a church community before and now have found East Lake and are like, okay, I'm, 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 like, I'm, it's weird, but I'm going to church, but I'm stressed out because I don't know exactly what to do. I mean, they don't make me stand up and sit down at different times like some of the other churches I've been to. That's good, but I still don't know that I'm, I still don't know that I'm doing all the things. I don't want to be known because then people would know what I'm lacking. So I like, I like that the room's dark. I like that I can leave right away. I like all this kind of stuff. But there's so much that I don't know still about what it would mean to be a Christian or whatever. I don't have to have anxiety about the things I don't know. I just have to respond. You're responsible to respond to the light that you have and the rest will come in God's time. I'm responsible to be like, I know what I should do. I know how I'm supposed to respond to this. I'm going to keep coming because this is going to, there's going to be some teaching, some black and white as we walk through scripture together. There's going to be some things where I'm going to be like, okay, I've got a little bit more light now. I know what to go do with, but I'm not going to stress about the stuff that I don't know about. I'm just trusting that God's going to lead me into that path. All right. Then the evaluation for you. Now that that thought is there, now I'm moving more towards people you probably have been around for a little bit longer. Okay? That first one is for like beginners. You've been coming for like a month or two months or whatever. The evaluation, honest transparency moment, not telling, you know, write this down on a card, turn it in, and we'll call you later this week. Nothing like that. Self-evaluation, which path am I on? Are things becoming brighter or dimmer when it comes to my personal obedience? If I was to take a long, hard look at my life and the current situation, and the things that I'm stressed about, and the things that I'm caught, I'm, I'm concerned about, the things that keep me awake at night, and the things that I talk about with my best friend or whatever, am I 
Am I walking in a path? Do I like where this thing is taking me? Do I like the person that I'm becoming based on the decisions that I've been making? Is it becoming brighter for me or darker for me? Is the sun rising or is it setting for me? And then the challenge, what do I do with all of this now? What light, what light am I currently not responding to? This is, let's make this real practical for each of us. What is the light? What is it that I know I should be doing? And I need to do it. Not because my spouse is nagging me about it uh, or my parents are making me do it. What is it that I know needs to take place? I'm, I'm fearful about it. I don't like it. It makes me uncomfortable. I know it's the right thing, but it's tough. It's difficult. What is the light that I'm not currently responding to? That is the underlying steering principle for spiritual growth in, in my mind, and I think in the minds of a lot of our leadership, most of our leadership team, in terms of how you grow at Eastlake. All right, let's pray. Father, I pray that this type of information would sink into the core of our, because this is, this is really good. Like for those of us who are parents, uh, especially of older kids, like this is really practical. Um, but I pose that illustration today simply because it makes it tangible and real in our minds and effective. And yet if we don't import that into how you're leading us, no matter where we're at, no matter what grade we're in or what college we're going to or what marriage relationship or girlfriend relationship or boyfriend relationship we're in, then, then we miss it. So we talk about the realness of it, but then I pray that it would sink into actually how we are operating in our life, that, that we, we are constantly being pushed towards a light that we can see. There are, there's light that we cannot see yet, and we're not responsible for that, but I, we trust that you're going to grow us into that so that we can become more like your son, Jesus, and respond uh, faster and more uh, efficiently and trust you more in leading us. So give us the wisdom to know what that looks like in our specific life and the situation that we find ourselves in this week and the courage to then take something or take steps to do something about it in your name. Amen.